Hey everyone, Mike here with another episode of Talking Media Studies. In this episode, we'll be talking about media effects and the case study that we looked at on the congressional testimony from Raymond Kuntz, the father who gave a public testimony to Congress about his uh, teenage son's death, which he believed was caused directly by Marilyn Manson's music in the 1990s. All right, in this episode, um, first I'm going to talk briefly about correlation and causality because I think that's that's kind of a sticky or tricky topic that students get a little bit stuck on, so I want to clarify that a bit. Um, afterwards, I'll look at some student comments to see, you know, really to see what the class had to say and see what, what common patterns I see among students and sort of give my response to some of those comments. Um, I'll then talk about my own understanding of the situation and how we can apply different media effects models to understand the claims being made here about media effects and media violence. Um, and, you know, the, the point here is really not only to respond to student comments, but more, most importantly to really clarify some of these media effects models, which, are, which can be difficult to, to think about, conceptualize, and to apply. All right, uh, let's get into it. All right, first, I want to talk about correlation and causality, which, you know, just the phrase itself can be, or the terms themselves can be a little confusing or a little hard to understand. Um, so to begin with, a correlation, the word correlation really just refers to any kind of observed relationship between any given set of variables. So, I mean, to, to speak in really simple terms, you know, you could, you could say there's a correlation between, um, you know, uh, the heat of a stove and food being cooked, right? You see variable A, the heat of a stove, variable B, food being cooked. And of course, you can do experiments to prove that actually, right, it's heat that is cooking food. I mean, I know this is a very goofy kind of silly example, but the point is that a correlation, you know, you can think about something like... Um, a correlation between you know clouds in the sky and rain coming down right you see uh, the more likely the more the more uh, if you see clouds in the sky the more likely it is that it will be rain versus a sunny day you know simple correlation it's just it's just an observed relationship between any two variables and of course um, as I explained in in the lecture uh, you know just a we have to be really careful with correlations because as the phrase goes correlation does not equal causality. Causality, right, the word causality refers to being able to prove whether or not any given variable causes any kind of effect on another given variable, right? Um, so for example, with, with pharmaceutical drugs, you know, you could, um, you know, you could, you could, um, I don't know, with certain medicines, you could observe a kind of correlation between a certain diet or a certain medicine, but when it comes to things like medicine, you have to go beyond a correlation. You actually have to do scientific experiments or medical experiments or run studies where you are able to isolate variables and be able to prove in a meaningful way that there is some kind of direct causality, that A is causing B, that taking a certain medicine is going to cause a certain kind of response. Um, 
Yeah, so I think this is one of the bigger differences or struggles between kind of the hard sciences and the social sciences. In the hard sciences, right, you're off, they're often based more around things like experiments, which are much better at proving causality compared to correlations, right? Often in the social sciences, like social, sociology or even in communication, we're often talking about correlative observations or even correlative data, which isn't always bad, but it's much less effective at proving right you really cannot prove causality simply from correlation um, compared to say running an experiment so to back to back up here uh, let's let's go into some examples so um, one common example that's related to media but that's not re directly related to media and violence is a claim that you hear often about depression and anxiety and social media use you've probably heard this before um, so let's really simplify this and just use it, use it as an example to talk about the idea of correlation and causality. All right. So we could say, for, as, it, as it often goes, and there is, you know, there is research around um, mental health and social media use. So this is not a totally made up example. But the truth is we don't know enough. We can't say for sure, just based on some correlative studies, that social media necessarily by itself is causing increases in depression or anxiety. Um, it's difficult to make that. We can see correlative data, but we have to be careful not to jump right to a causal claim. Okay, so to map this out, we could say that a variable A is that the more someone uses social media, the more likely they will be depressed or anxious. That's variable B, right? So the use of social media is variable A and the likeliness likelihood of being depressed or anxious is variable B. And yeah, you could, you know, there is research that shows a cor correlations between um, an increase in social media use and an increase in likelihood that somebody might be depressed or anxious. And so you could look at that and say, hey, whoa, we've just proven, right, that you use social media, you're going to be more depressed or anxious. But we have to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, pump the brakes. This is just a correlation, right? And so one of the first things you do when you're talking about correlation and causality is to start changing the way you discuss, um, you know, you, you, what you do is you flip the, the potential causal arrow. So instead of A causing B, you ask yourself, could it be based on the exact same data that B actually causes A? So let's flip this and think about it. So it could be that the more likely someone is to be depressed or anxious or the more yeah the more someone is depressed or anxious the more likely they are to use social media so that's in this case it's b causing an increase in a so it's someone who is depressed or anxious for whatever reason is using more social media and if you think about it logically it actually kind of makes some sense right if you are experiencing more depression or anxiety yeah you might you know you might be more likely to use your phone or to use the internet and, you know, just to distract yourself because you, you don't feel well or, you know, you feel anxious. Um, I think probably a lot of people do this, myself included. Um, and so you can see there that what we did is we reversed the causal arrow. And so now we already have complicated that, that, that correlative data, right? Um, and then the third thing you want to do when you evaluate correlative data or you are evaluating a causal claim based on correlative data is that you ask yourself, could there be other variables that might be impacting this, right? Um, could it be something like the time of year or the weather? That would be like variable C. You know, for example, um, the winter time might 
increase people's use of social media and increase the likelihood that they're depressed or anxious, right? So it could be um, the weather, it could be the time of year, it could be uh, it could be all sorts of things, socioeconomic status, you know, as someone experiencing poverty, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, but the point is here that we have to be pretty careful to make very, we have to avoid making strong definitive causal claims based on simply correlative data. Doesn't mean it isn't true, but does it, it means that we can't completely, we can't prove it, right? Um, or for example, there could be, maybe it's more of a cyclical relationship. It could be, for example, that um, maybe B causes a little bit of A, but then A causes more of B and sort of into the cycle. So for example, to, to kind of map this out with this example, we could say that perhaps someone starts out as more depressed or anxious, you know, for any reason, could be biological, could be env environmental, we don't really know. And because they're more, they're more depressed or anxious, they use their phone more. So in that case, A is causing B. But then, because they're using their phone more, right, they're spending more time in social media, they're, that maybe that also exacerbates or makes worse their depression or anxiety. So then B is causing A, then A is actually then uh, kind of making B worse, right? And then B might, then as you get more anxious or depressed, you might use social media even more. So we could see there's actually a complex or even cyclical relationship between A and B. So it's not so simple that B causes A or that A causes B. Okay, you know, if that was that too confusing, um, you know, the point again really is just to point out that we have to be careful with um, correlations and we can't necessarily prove for a fact that based on only correlative data that A is causing B or that B is causing A. So the point is we should be careful with causal claims. So let's bring this to media and violence, which is a, probably the most common causal claim that you see based on correlative data. So we could say that the more, um, the more as it commonly goes, the more violent media someone consumes, that, that would be variable A, the more violent they will be. That would be variable B, okay? And that's, you hear that a lot. But as we said, the first step is to flip the causal arrow. So we could say that, well, what if it's actually not A causing B, but B causing A? So this would be then, the more violent someone is already, the more that person will seek out and consume violent media. So in this case, it's not violent media that's making somebody more violent. It's someone who is more violent for whatever reason, is seeking out violent media that you know it matches their their mood, their experience, their personality, whatever. Um, and also, again, we could also think: Are there other variables here? Variables C, D, E, F, G, etc. Things like yeah, poverty, culture, um, you know, so many other variables, education level, so many other things that could influence whether somebody might be more or less likely to, to engage in violence, whether they'd be more or less likely to watch and consume violent media. So even if we see a correlation and observed relationship that the more someone is violent, the more they watch violent media, that doesn't mean it could be A causing B, it could be B causing A, it could be C, D, E causing A and B, right? Got to be careful with that. Um, okay, so I hope that makes sense. Let's get to your comments. Okay, before I get to your comments, I just want to say a quick note about the context, the kind of historical cultural context within which this testimony was taking place. And this testimony is from the mid 1990s. 
Yeah. So in the 1990s, it's interesting, you know, we really have moved so far away from this whole cultural debate and discussion. But in the 1990s, there were widespread calls to ban certain forms of music, as well as other um, violent media. Um, so, so yeah, to ban music for offensive or violent lyrics, which, um, you know, especially in particular from hip hop music, rap, and heavy metal or rock and roll. Uh, of course, as you can imagine, the people who are calling on or calling for these 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 bans, right? You know, banning um, artistic music ran up against freedom of speech issues, in particular protections for artistic creation. Because you know, who gets to decide what is or is not "quote unquote" bad content? Um, you know, one person's you know dangerous or bad content might be another person's form of artistic expression. In the United States, like many other countries in the world has pretty strong protections for forms of speech that include things like art and artistic creation. So this time period, although there were many people calling, especially more religious leaders were calling for banning this kind of, this kind of music, um, they were largely ineffective, right? Uh, mostly what happened was after many years of this kind of testimony and congressional hearings, and politicking, what we ended up with was um, that parental guidance, explicit lyrics label that uh, you would see on CDs. And of course, it's so interesting today because, you know, with the internet, there's very little restrictions on what you can see. You can find, yeah, you can find basically everything, everything from extreme pornography to extreme violence. I mean, you can find the stuff you can find on the internet makes the 1990s seem uh, quite, quite quaint, if you will. Um, but I think part of that is just practical that, you know, there's very little that can be done, um, you know, in terms of regulating the internet, at least without running up against, especially without running up against things like freedom of speech issues. Of course, social media platforms, many of them ban very violent content. They ban nudity and pornography and things like that. But those things are not banned from the internet, right? They might be banned from private corporations or companies or platforms, but not from the internet as a whole. Okay, let's get to your music. So, you know, let's get your comments because I really want to look at uh, what students are saying and to help us understand some of these media effects models, which I think are helpful, but you know, sometimes maybe not always that helpful. So let's use them in a try to try to use them in a in a useful kind of specific manner. Okay, so to start us off with, to start us off, um, Zach B writes. To me, it seems as if Kuntz is evoking the hypodermic needle model. Kuntz attributes powerful effects to mass media messages and states that his son was easily influenced by, by this powerful media. This is not a very convincing claim because there's not enough evidence to support his claim that this specific song was the reason for his son wanting to take his own life. There were almost certainly numerous other factors that played into that decision being made, not just that one song. The hypodermic needle model is largely discredited by researchers, so this is not surprising. So this is a great comment from Zach and I think really captures some important points about the hypodermic needle model. And I also want to make a note that obviously um, this is a very sad story. You know, we're only using this because this father did go on the congressional record and make this congressional testimony part of the political process. So it does make it fair game for us as academic scholars to study. But we know, of course, we want to be respectful of, you know, the, the, the son's death and obviously uh, mental health and suicide is a very, very serious and, and topic to treat respectfully. But, you know, and I thought I think everybody in class really did a nice job at 
um, talking about this in a respectful but also academic manner. So yeah, I mean, Zach is right. I think generally speaking, um, we, you know, in scholarship, the idea, this hypodermic needle model, also called the direct effects model, this idea that media has this kind of universal, direct, powerful effect on people, we really just don't have evidence for that. You know, people are complex. Um, people have pre-existing beliefs and value systems, especially something as complex as mental health. Uh, really, one individual song or one individual movie can't be seen as the sort of a powerful force that's going to, you know, cause someone to do something as serious as take their own life. Doesn't mean it ha has zero effect, but it means we should first be pretty careful at ascribing any kind of particular powerful direct effects from any kind of given media content. Um, so yeah, great start from Zach with that. Uh, Abigail C. writes, I think that the media effects model being used by the father is a social learning theory. Kuntz talks about how he believes there to be a link between the violence in the song's lyrics and the violence enacted by teens around the country. Also, like the class lecture mentions, it is difficult to prove the link in the social learning theory, which is something I believe to be true about the claim Kuntz makes. Although I agree that violent songs can lead to violent actions, I believe there, has, there is more involved in teenage suicide than just feeling persuaded by their favorite song. As tragic as it is that Kuntz, Kuntz's son took his own life while listening to this music, I do not believe it to be the only factor as Kuntz makes it seem in the hearing. So yeah, another thoughtful comment here from Abigail, and I think, you know, is a good use of social learning theory. Um, you know, in terms of what model the father is evoking, now, of course, the father here, he doesn't, I'm sure, know these <laughs> somewhat arcane academic media effects models, but the way he is describing the influence of Marilyn Manson's song and his music on his son definitely matches the hypodermic needle model. I'd say that's the best application because he is describing the media as having this kind of powerful direct effect on his son and his son friends and other kids. Um, we could also say that he also is some, what he's saying is also somewhat matching this idea of social learning theory, this kind of monkey see monkey do idea, meaning that um, his father is sort of suggesting that uh, Marilyn Manson's music had kind of a negative role model effect on his son. And maybe, maybe this, this, this model is a little bit more useful for us um, because it doesn't quite say that media is, the media content itself is having this very powerful direct effect, but rather that people mimic the, they, they use people and, and culture that they see in the media. They use that as a, as a narrative and a way of understanding their own identity. So perhaps, um, you know, his son was looking up to Marilyn Manson as a kind of role model. And in doing so, um, maybe that uh, pushed his, his son towards, uh, being, you know, being being suicidal or being in a mentally unsafe uh, or unhealthy place. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, that might be a, a little bit more useful. But in terms of the way the father is describing the effect of media, he's definitely, it's definitely closest to the hypodermic needle model or the direct effects model, right? And that's one of the problems with the testimony, I think, is that his father is describing this music is having this really, really powerful effect and saying that it's affecting kids all over the country. But, you know, he doesn't really provide much evidence for that. You know, he provides his son's story, but his son's experience is what we call an anecdote. An anecdote is just one person's experience, which we can't necessarily extrapolate 
onto the population as a whole, right? Um, Sierra, Sierra B writes, I believe back when this type of music was new and unfamiliar, familiar, it could be easy to believe Raymond's argument. However, in my experience, I've grown up uh, hearing songs that could be labeled as violent or inappropriate, and I've never been persuaded to perform an action that is unlike me normally after hearing a song. So yeah, Sierra provides her own kind of anecdotal experience here, but I think throws a little cold water on this idea, you know, saying that, you know, and I think a lot of people, myself included, I, you know, I heard a lot of uh, inappropriate, violent, other types of media, con you know, content that probably wasn't for me when I was younger, um, as well as as an adult. And these things don't necessarily have this kind of, um, you know, kind of, uh, mind control effect or this direct powerful effect doesn't mean they have no effects but it means that we have to be careful ascribing too universal too powerful of an effect here uh, dylan b writes i wrote about this argument in relation to school shootings in one of my sociology classes the case study focused on seeing if school shootings were caused by violent types of media though as mentioned earlier it was found that no direct causation can be pointed towards violent behavior it's interesting yeah at the same time period um, violent video games and violent music and violent movies were being pointed at as potentially causing an uptick in things like school shootings. Although, you know, a very famous school shooting happened in the 1990s, Columbine. Um, and we've had, wow, we've had so many school shootings since then. It's really quite depressing. But this is part of why this is a useful comment from Dylan here is that there really haven't been, you know, the United States is actually very unique and somewhat exceptional. And I mean, exceptional in a negative way in the number, the raw number of um, mass shootings and school shootings that it has. You can look at, I mean, violent music and violent movies and violent video games exist in countries all over the world, you know, in Canada, in Europe and Australia, right? And Elsewhere, you just don't see, you're just see, you don't, you're not seeing anything like the kind of mass shootings that we have here in the United States. So we should be careful. Say, you know, uh, if it was just violent media that was causing something like a mass shooting, um, we would see that all over the world where we just don't see that. So there's clearly something else or other variables, probably not just one variable, there's probably other things going on in the United States that could be causing the much a greater volume and uh, com sadly common experience that we have of mass shootings, which, you know, in the 1990s was still somewhat of a shock to people. Today, I mean, I, there was a while, there's a time where I could remember all the names of all the school shootings that had happened in the US, but probably around 2012, 2013, there were just too many and I, I, I could no longer remember the names of them all. Um, and, you know, probably you've heard many of these yourself, um, but, you know, we can't, we're not quite equipped to deal with the topic of mass shootings in our class, but certainly we should be careful that, you know, if it was true that, that violent media caused mass shootings, we would see mass shootings in a bunch of other countries as well. And we, um, you know, we just don't see that. So, all right. Uh, Pat H writes, I don't want to seem cold hearted, but even though, but even though his son tragically passed away, there's no proof that it was only to do with violent music in the media, which is supported by the minimal effects model. Minimal effects model says that media messages alone cannot easily cause people to change their attitudes and behaviors and that people create selective exposure and retention with regard to media, which means that they only expose themselves to media content familiar to their worldview, beliefs, feelings, and values. I think the father's testimony was true to the fact that he believes music led to his son's actions, but there's no proof to support his testimony. In those moments of grief and stress, people look to the most obvious cause 
and in this case, it was music, because no parent wants to truly admit their child is depressed or experiencing suicidal behavior on their own volition. So in this case, they blame the music instead of evaluating their child's previous behavior or feelings. Yeah, you know, this is a really helpful comment from Pat here. Um, you know, the truth is, this father is, you know, we, we really have no idea what was going on in this family. You know, maybe, you know, of course, nobody wants to speak ill of a, a parent who's lost a child, but maybe this father wasn't available. Maybe he wasn't around. Maybe that maybe this child's family life, you know, wasn't going well. Um, you know, we don't, we, maybe he was being bullied in school. It's It seems... Um, pretty unlikely, and it, based on our own experiences, that violent music itself could really be the thing that caused this to happen. I think what I'm seeing in the student comments, both the ones I've selected and more broadly, is that most of you were pretty skeptical that um, Marilyn Manson's music, however dark, however violent, could by itself have been the true cause of the son suicide. Now, we should, it, it may have been, the truth is we'll never know the truth, but we, you know, we're using this as an example to really talk through these effects models. Uh, Daniel M. writes, I think it's really difficult to point the blame at one person because of the art they've created. While Manson's songs are polarizing and violent, there are some people who enjoy them. Man, Manson doesn't explicitly tell any person to commit acts of violence, so he shouldn't be responsible for the death of anyone who commits suicide thinking it, it is his will. It's a slippery slope to correlate lyrics with acts of violence because it would give people the idea they're obeying their favorite musician by acting out their lyrics. He goes on to write, I have played a lot of video games in my life and many have been games that games parents would consider violent. I haven't been affected by these games in any way and I don't find it difficult to separate the game from reality. I don't think that video games correlate to violence and there hasn't been any evidence to show a real link between the two. So yeah, this is a really insightful comment from Daniel here. Who says, you know, we have to be careful that, you know, the truth is that many people genuinely enjoyed Manson's songs. And this is one of the one of the things that I think is is interesting here. Um, you know, Marilyn Manson was not an obscure musician. I mean, you can look him up on Wikipedia and read about him. Marilyn Manson, who was he was popular when I was in high school, which is part of why I chose this example. I think it's it can be helpful to look at these older examples of the past to give us. You know, they're a little bit less hot, if you will, than today's big debates. Um, but Marilyn Manson was really, really popular. He sold 50 million records. 50 million records. He was one of the most popular artists in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, it's funny. He was a mainstream popular artist, right? He was popular all around the world, in the U.S., in Latin America, in Europe, all over the place. And, you know, we just, you know, there wasn't there wasn't some kind of big increase in suicides at, you know, there, there, there's just no evidence to show that his music, you know, and it's of course, you know, I should also mention that Marilyn Manson was not the only person making this kind of music. There were many, many, many artists and bands that were making dark, um, kind of violent sounding or aggressive, uh, or other music with kind of dark themes, right? Themes of death, of um, destruction, things like that. It was actually a pretty common, there were many, many bands that were creating this kind of music. And even to this day, we maybe don't have as much today, but um, certainly that kind of stuff hasn't gone away. So yeah, so we should be careful that actually, you know, on the one hand, many people love and enjoy this music. And we also just, you know, we don't really, um, like with violent video games, we don't really have good evidence that proves that there's any kind of increase in 
things like shooting or or suicide due to violent media like video games or even music itself. Um, see, a really helpful comment there. Kaylee M writes. Manson's, Manson's music is a form of self-expression, and he should be able to say what he wants. I think songs aren't as influential as videos and pictures because you really need to analyze the words to understand. I think you can analyze Manson's words and see that it talks about suicide and drugs, but there is no way to say he specifically wants people to listen to it in the intent of having them kill, him, kill themselves. You can claim that the music is graphic and a little persuading, but there's not a way to prove that Manson's, Manson made the song to make people want to die unless you ask him via an interview. The only thing you can claim about the music is that it's graphic and talks about things like suicide and drugs. Yeah, I mean, you know, the truth is that suicide, drug use, um, you know, sex, violence, all these topics have been talked about in form of forms of culture for hundreds and thousands of years in different ways. I mean, even biblical stories are quite quite violent. And, you know, I was, I was um, just talking to a friend of mine who lives in Switzerland. He lives in Lucerne, which is a really old city. And um, as related to the pandemic we're experiencing, you know, in Europe, there was the Black Death, which was a plague that killed roughly a third of the European population. So, you know, I think, you know, so many people was extremely devastating. And yeah, a lot of the art from that time period is very, very heavy on themes of death, destruction, sadness. Um, yeah, suicide, lots of lots of topics uh, that you, you know, might see in popular music was in paintings and sculptures and, and lyrical poetry and literature. Um, yeah. I mean, even Shakespeare, quite, quite violent, you know, um, Romeo and Juliet, right. Uh, you know, all, you know, so these, it's not like these things are new. I think sometimes when they show up in a new media form, they can cause alarm and be scary to parents. And of course, you know, one thing we should be really important to, to emphasize that when it comes to children, you know, it is common and, and makes sense that parents want to protect their kids from more adult topics. I mean, the truth is that, you know, this is a big important point to make here is that Marilyn's Manson music is not meant for kids who are as young as uh, the, the son in question here, you know, um, how he got his hands on this music. I don't know, but this is part of why we have restrictions on who can buy and who can download or who can view certain types of media. Certain movies are rated R certain songs have, uh, you know, uh, have warnings on them. Um, and that's, you know, and part of this is because, you know, when we, when we have, you know, as when you have a young child or a young teenager, you know, their brains are not fully developed. They don't have an adult's ability to, to, to weigh and understand, you know, it's, it's why parents shield their kids from certain quote unquote adult topics. So, you know, in this, in this question, yeah, it could be. I mean, it is definitely possible that Marilyn Manson's music did contribute to the son's suicide. I mean, it is absolutely possible, um, but it's hard to say. It's really hard to say, and we don't have proof or evidence for it being the primary cause. And of course, the other fact is that you know what is to be done about that. You know, we're not. You know, in order, Marilyn Manson's music is a totally legitimate form of artistic expression, and of course. In a free society, we're not going to, you know, we have no grounds with which to ban someone for making art. So the, really, the, the main thing you can do is encourage parents to limit their, expo you know, the way their kids are exposed to you know, content that might exacerbate, you know, maybe, you know, probably most likely uh, the son was depressed for other reasons. And maybe the music um, 
could have exacerbated his existing uh, mental health situation. Um, of course, we, we really don't know, but um, again, always have to be careful here. Uh, Michael D writes, it's painful to watch the father describe the suicide of his son. It will plague him every day of his life, wondering why my son, what could have been done better? But he focuses entirely on one possible factor, his son's obsession with Marilyn Manson. This is not sufficient, however. If Marilyn Manson sold six, six million copies of the record, how many of those youngsters listening actually committed suicide? One, 10, 50? And again, uh, six million actually, you know, was closer to about 50 million. Um, you go, Michael goes on to write, the hypodermic needle model is used here by the father where the media, Manson's lyrics shoots its poisonous effects directly into the unsuspecting innocent victim. Life, however, is more complicated. Uh, the music and lyrics may have contributed to the son's death, but there is probably much more at issue here. The father's views are purely speculative. He is presenting a theory of possibility. There's correlation, but not causation. Marilyn Manson's lyrics possibly accelerated, but did not cause the suicidal tendencies. But I, but I sympathize with the father's search for a way to prevent other teenage suicides. His answer, not censorship, but simply placing warning labels on records is a good starting point. So yeah, I think, you know, this is a really thoughtful and kind comment from Michael here, who, you know, I think all of us are, you know, sympathetic. Um, and certainly, I think the father is just probably looking for answers to understand. Um, and and you know, certainly, it makes sense that you'd want to have some kind of systems to, to maybe limit given that, you know, we could, you know, we don't know, um, maybe this type of more violent music shouldn't be listened to by 10, 12, 13 year olds. Um, all right. So one thing I want to do now is I want to highlight, um, I want to kind of take a different approach to this entire example. So uh, I think, um, well, actually, let me, let me backtrack here. Let me say, let's just sum up. So we've said that the father is definitely invoking the hypodermic needle model. Right. He even goes, goes on to describe Manson's music as sort of grenades being thrown into um, the lives of children. Um, <clears throat> and we mentioned how there, we just don't really, unfortunately, we don't have evidence to support the idea that Marilyn Manson's music or any music like that was causing people to commit suicide because there just wasn't, we don't have, we don't have inf data that there was somehow this kind of increase in suicide as there was this type of music. And also his music wasn't totally unique or new. Um, and as we noted, Marilyn Manson was incredibly popular, sold tens of millions of records all around the world. Um, and we just didn't have any kind of epidemic of suicide linked to his music or anyone else's music. So, you know, social learning model could be helpful here as well, right? And that maybe um, Marilyn Manson and his music was providing a kind of negative role model for kids, perhaps. And we talked about how brains, kids, uh, ch children's brains are not fully mature or necessarily able to handle the themes in the same way as adults. Um, so we can say at the least that there's no evidence that his music was causing any kind of pattern of harm, but maybe in some individual cases, it could be, it could be harmful for kids or young teenagers. Um, as you mentioned, his music was even legally speaking, not meant for kids, but, and here's where I'm going to take this really opposite approach to understanding this entire example. What if, what if really the opposite of what the father is argue, arguing here is true? What if Marilyn Manson's music was actually helping people rather than hurting people? You know, not many students took this approach, but there were a couple students here that did kind of veer towards this angle of analysis. And there are three comments in particular that stood out to me 
as interesting in, the, in this manner. And R wrote, wrote um, children and teens' minds are not fully grown, so they are vulnerable to be, to be influenced by bad ideas if they have an idol, kind of as we already talked about. She went on to write, another way to interpret violent music and media is that it could be an outlet for kids to let out their violent behavior instead of actually acting on the violent thoughts themselves. So, wow, this is a really interesting take here. Anne is basically suggesting that, hey, maybe even, even for young teenagers, right, maybe violent music is actually a way, an outlet for kids who already feel depressed or, you know, are already having you know, maybe issues of aggression. Maybe this is a way, an outlet for that aggression rather than a cause of that aggression, right? And of course, you know, violence or aggression is not the same thing as uh, depression and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't want to confl conflate the two here. Um, Blake M writes, in contrast to this model, the music industry could use, uh, we could think about the minimal effects model that says that people expose themselves to things they like. Perhaps suicide has been an existing intention for the father-son and Manson's music was a way for him to cope or accept it. So Blake is suggesting that actually maybe Manson's music was helping the sons cope with feeling depressed. And maybe his son was already feeling suicidal and that listening to music that matched that mood or feeling was actually helping him cope or accept it. Um, you know, again, it's really hard to say, but I think we do know that, yeah, when people feel sad, sometimes they want to listen to sad music and that sad music isn't what caused them to feel sad or bad, but it might help them in that moment. Um, again, does it mean that kids should all be listening to this music? Probably not. Again, this music is not meant for children, but broadly speaking for individuals, right? Um, people do seek out certain types of content that matches how they feel. And this would be a little closer to the uses and gratifications model, I think. Um, Richard M. writes, I like the cultivation effect as the one that fits best. The lyrics portray the world as an ashtray and our world and our role in the world is meaningless and not worth living. The song made number three in the charts, charts then it is likely that many listeners agreed and hence are cultivated. Then they could be influenced to exit as suggested in the lyrics. The fact that the song was so popular and that the son listened to it all the time suggests that use and gratifications could also be useful here. People listen to the song because it, grat it gratified some need to confirm their feeling about the world, maybe their own world. Maybe their own world was an ashtray, as the song describes. However, I'm not sure this model would support the causal thinking that suggests the lyrics could lead to suicide. So yeah, Richard M. is really picked up on something important here. And so let's talk about this uses and gratifications approach. Because the direct effects model, even the minimal effects model, these models are really still focusing on media content and the effects it could or, or does that does or does not have on people. While the uses and gratifications approach or model really turns our whole attention to a totally different thing. Rather than focusing on the effect of media content, it asks us to say or ask, why do people seek out? particular media content. The focus is on the agency of individuals rather than the agency or effect of content, right? So we need to stop here and think, okay, why did people like Marilyn Manson's music, right? Millions and millions of people were Marilyn Manson fans. He had huge sold out concerts all over the country, all over the world, right? Clearly there was a reason that people were seeking out his content. You know, we have to be careful to not think of media content as sort of brainwashing people, right? That actually people choose, they chose, many people chose to buy his albums, chose to buy his concert tickets. Young people, old people, everyone in between. 
you know, and you know, this might not make sense to you because you know, Marilyn Manson is in his fifties. Marilyn Manson is, is, you know, well past his, his prime years. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, part of why I chose this example is that it resonated with me as someone who uh, was in high school when Marilyn Manson was popular in the early 2000s. And I know I, I personally was was not a Marilyn Manson fan. I found his music a little too dark for the kind of music that I liked. But it's interesting, you know, you know, the people I knew in high school who were big Marilyn Manson fans, you know, I don't want to be too stereotypical, but overall, the people who were big Merle Manson fans tended to be people who were often seen or maybe felt like they were outcasts or that they were didn't fit into kind of the mainstream popular kid model of high school, right? And maybe didn't fit into the kind of sugar pop world of pop music at the time. You know, your Britney Spears, your Mandy Moore, your NSYNC, your Backstreet Boys, who, you know, their songs were about happiness and love and they were, you know, sugar pop. They they didn't really sing about serious issues, if you will. And, you know, Marilyn's Manson music provided a much different kind of world to experience. You know, yeah, your world is an ashtray, right? And, you know, maybe kids who felt their world was an ashtray, maybe they wanted to hear music and they sought out music that matched how they felt. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting you know, Marilyn Manson's music, I, I didn't like it really when I was younger, but as a, as a grown adult, I've actually, I don't, I still don't listen to it for fun, but as a scholar, I've listened to it. And his music is actually pretty interesting. It's actually, in some ways, it's really, it's really unique. It's very artistic. Um, his music, his songs include themes, you know, he criticizes materialism, um, you know, he criticizes uh, the strictness of religion and religious upbringing, which I think relates to how he was raised. And broadly, his music is a real. Oops, uh, my mic just cut out. So let me just pick up where I was before. So yeah, I was talking about how um, Marilyn Manson's music was as actually pretty unique at the time that he, you know, if you look at some of his songs and different lyrics and albums, you know, he was really, he was critiquing that world of kind of your sugar pop world of pop music, your, you know, Britney Spears, many more, Antic, et cetera, which, you know, did not appeal to everybody. There were many people who, didn't feel they fit in that world, you know, in that world of, you know, sugar pop music, it was really tied to consumerism and middle to upper middle class families, you know, many, many folks who are working class or poor, right, who maybe their family couldn't afford for them to go buy Abercrombie and Fitch clothing, you know, um, there was a there was a horrible song at the time for literally there was a band forgot what they were called, who, who recorded a song called Abercrombie and Fitch, right? You know, and it was a really expensive clothing, right? For kids to, to own. And so, yeah, you know, I just remember when I was in high school, yeah, the kind of people who are Marilyn Manson fans, there were folks, there were, you know, there were people who, you know, they, they, they were maybe picked on or seen as outsiders or maybe from more socioeconomically uh, less wealthy families, uh, you know, we have to think about why what Meryl Manson's music is is in probably in most cases helping young people or you know helping his fans feel better about their their situation, their lot in life. I think one of the really interesting things that you can do, and I found this myself, um, you can go onto YouTube and you can watch, you know, some of Meryl Manson's music. And of course, you know, he's he's an adult now. Meryl Manson is in his fifties. I mean, he's he's well into adulthood, right? He's an old, older person. He's in his fifties. Uh, he, you know, and his fans are in their thirties and forties. Many of them probably have kids. And what's so interesting is you, you can kind of put on your anthropological hat 
or maybe your ethno ethnographic hat, you can go onto YouTube and you can read the comments, which I don't usually recommend, but in this case, it kind of recommends. It's kind of interesting. And if you do, you'll see a kind of a common pattern, right? On YouTube, many people under his music are writing things like, wow, Marilyn Manson, his music got me through the hardest years of my life. Or things like, Marilyn, you know, I wouldn't have survived high school without Marilyn Manson's music. You know, person after person I saw writing about how they were, you know, they liked Marilyn Manson when they were experiencing a really difficult time in their lives, when they were, they felt like an outcast, they felt marginalized, they felt, um, you know, they felt outside of the mainstream world uh, for whatever reason. And his music helped them feel better about themselves. So, you know, it's interesting to think that maybe Marilyn Manson's music was actually helping people you know, keeping people from being suicidal, keeping people from experiencing, or at least helping them feel better, you know, when they're feeling down or feeling depressed, um, that kind of thing. So of course, you know, mental health is super complicated. There are many variables and factors, um, but, you know, music as an art form is something that people use when they are not feeling well, when they're in their identity, you know, they're struggling with their identity, they're, they're struggling with how to be an adult, how to socialize properly, how to mature. And it does seem like Marilyn, it may not make sense if you don't like his music. I mean, I don't really like his music. It doesn't really make sense to me exactly either. But uh, yeah, what it does make sense is that many people, uh, it seems, suggest or say that his music was what really helped them. And they loved his music for that reason. So yeah, we have to be so careful in this way. And this is why it's so important when we talk about art that we avoid the trap of thinking that some art is good and some art is bad and that any given person or institution can decide exactly what art is good and what art is bad, right? Um, so is that, and this is why things like freedom of expression are pretty important here. You know, unfortunately, you know, I, I do, I have my own kind of personal experience with some similar version of this. Um, you know, when I was in high school, uh, a close friend of mine did uh did take his own life when he was 20 years old uh he was actually i think he was a freshman in college at the time you know and we were both into this band called alkaline trio which they were kind of they were a little they weren't quite like marilyn manson they were they were more um they're more of a punk band um but alkaline trio you know they sung a lot about death and other kind of macabre uh topics but I know, you know, he, he was really into that band and, you know, I was into them as well. And I, I know that he was, he was depressed for other reasons. You know, there were, there were many other reasons that he was experiencing depression and really having a hard time, uh, you know, and that led to him taking his own life. You know, obviously it was a really awful and, and such a tragic thing for him and his family to go through. And, you know, something I still think about from time to time. Um, but I know, you know, just from being his friend and sort of, knowing the music i mean the mu i mean i you can't say for sure but the music i'm guessing it seemed like he you know he that music probably helped him feel better it probably helped him while he was going through a really difficult time you know something that helped him you know connect when why you know he was feeling really badly for many many different reasons that obviously i'm not going to go into um well, probably only some of which i was aware of um and, you know, this music was probably something that matched how he, what he was experiencing at the time in his life. Um, so again, 
obviously, of course, we have to take uh, this stuff really seriously. But, you know, we also it is important to talk about these debates about media violence, about, you know, graphic and extreme even forms of media. It doesn't mean it's all good or that especially it doesn't mean that, you know, kids or even teenagers should have access to this stuff. But especially when it comes to things like adults and, you know, access to art forms, got to be careful when we start ascribing this kind of idea that they have any kind of powerful universalized effects, which even beyond anecdotes, we, we just don't have evidence that it does. Um, again, it doesn't mean that a song or a movie or anything that couldn't influence someone to take their own life or to even to commit a violent act, it, they probably sure they have in some instances, but it's not a universal factor. And we have to weigh that against the, the value of, of art and culture in our society. Anyhow, I want to finish up with one last comment um, from Michael D, which I thought was really interesting. Michael D writes, the father did say something remarkable at minute 35 regarding corporations. Corporations, he said, have social obligations and responsibilities, a very important insight. Most corporations believe just the opposite, that their sole obligation is to increase shareholder wealth, um, citing Midland Friedman, 1970. Economists, CEOs, and shareholders have have held firmly to this belief for generations. Now, however, others are echoing the father's view. The corporations have duties to employees for fair wages, to consumers for healthy and safe products, and to society for not polluting the air and water, and even to citizens regarding corporate payoffs or political contributions to politicians. The father, Raymond Kuntz, is onto a real paradigm shift here, a much more important issue than Marilyn Manson's music. I think this is a great point to end with because Michael is really pointing out here how you know, regardless of what we want to say about culture, we, we need to think about the influence of the corporate structure of our society. And in particular, most of our media environment is created by for-profit corporations. And certainly the father is right in this way. He's absolutely, you know, he critiques that, you know, these corporations don't really care and they, they don't, right? I mean, corporations are legal entities that are legally obligated to maximize profits for their shareholders. You know, they're going to do whatever they can do, legally speaking, to make as much money as possible. And so that could include things like pushing inappropriate music or other media content onto young people um, in various ways, certainly. Um, so, yeah, so I bring things up because this week we're going to be talking about the economic structure of the media industry. And there's so many questions and, and interesting topics and debates we can get into there. But I think this is a great point to leave off of to, so that we should think about. You know, what are the economic incentives? What are the economic pressures? What is the economic structure of the industry that creates or funds music like Marilyn Manson or any type of music? And, and what, you know, what are some of the things we can think about with relationship to those profit incentives? Should corporations have more obligations? Should there be more regulations on corporations to, to nudge them or incentivize them to be, have more, yeah, more, whether it's, uh, worker safety, better wages, or more obligation to putting out, you know, um, healthier, better quality material. Certainly, we can see with, you know, with the internet, right? Social media platforms they 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 are under some pressure, um, increasingly so, to to regulate the kinds of content that is on their platforms, especially for young people. Um, but this is very much an ongoing debate. All right, I'm going to leave it here. Hope you enjoyed this. Hope you found that interesting. Thank you so much for all of your comments. I really enjoyed reading them as I always do. And I look forward to reading your next set of posts. Take care.